and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. back to another episode of the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. Really excited to have you with us for another great show today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you could help us out at the podcast. First of all, just thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting the show. If this is your first time here, welcome. If you've been here before, welcome back. And if you've been here before, you know about our patreon.com slash intentional performers homepage where you can subscribe to the show for as little as $2 a month and as much as $10 a month. It really does help us because we do not have advertising on this show. And in 2018, we actually had a bunch of people sign up. So thanks to those of you that signed up and that continued to support the show. And if you find these conversations meaningful, helpful, interesting, useful, please go over to patreon.com slash intentional performers and subscribe to the show. Thank you all for your continued support. Now to today's guest. So as many of you know, or some of you know, or if you've listened to the podcast before, you know I try to play basketball on Wednesday nights. Uh, I tore my ACL a few years ago, and that set me back. And now I'm back to playing again. And one of the guys I play with is a guy named Josh Grossman. And Josh works for Syracuse University and helps them get the word out on some of the professors that they have on campus. And I told Josh about my podcast And he said, oh, that sounds really cool. I might have somebody for you and your podcast. And so he connected me with a woman named Maria Brown. It's Dr. Maria Brown. She has a PhD from Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. When I was at Syracuse, I did my undergrad there. I had a lot of classes in the Maxwell School. It's a beautiful building. It's really well known for uh, their School of Public Affairs. And she wrote a dissertation which was entitled Psychiatric History and Cognition Trajectories in Later Life, Variations by Sex, Race, and ethnicity and childhood disadvantage. So you're going to find out from Maria that her upbringing was anything but normal. It was pretty chaotic and she had to deal with mental illness in her family. She had to deal with poverty and a lot of other challenges that made her a unique case coming out of high school and her ability to go on to Ithaca College and study her undergrad. She'll also talk about her brothers and her other siblings and their ability to go on to college. 
Fortunately for us, Maria was willing to share her story and some of the challenges and difficulties she's had throughout her life and how she's risen above some of those challenges. Now she's actually gone towards some of those challenges. So she will talk about her parents' battle with dementia and how that has led to a lot of her work studying mental illness and dementia and that cocktail and that combination and how challenging that can be, especially for people in disadvantaged areas. So Maria is going to be vulnerable in this conversation, and I hope you pay attention and listen to her story, her journey, her mindset, and how she has overcome some really big challenges in her life. So this is a rich conversation. It's a deep conversation. And without further ado, I'm excited to present to you Maria Brown. Maria, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, it is snowy where I am right now, and we're in about uh, eight inches of snow. So before we started recording, we were, we were talking a little bit about that. And uh, you are up in Syracuse, New York, my alma mater, where it seemed like every day when, when I woke up at school, you put your boots on, you put your jacket on, and, and you go to school because it, it snows a lot up there. But uh, we were just reminiscing about snow and how it impacts the world and community. Um, but hopefully today we will focus in on, on our conversation and learn a little bit about what you're up to, a little bit about your mindset and, and how you've cultivated that mindset and also uh, your journey. And when we spoke a couple of weeks ago, I was really intrigued by your journey and I'm excited to share uh, you with my community. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So where I'd love to start with you, Maria, is, is just to get a sense of your childhood and what life was like for you as a kid. And uh, just paint that picture for us so that we can get an idea of how you came to be you. Okay. Um, I grew up in a large family. My parents had six children. Um, and uh, because my mother had bipolar disorder, we, my father really wasn't able to do any sort of steady work. Um, and so we were poor. We were on welfare. This is back in the 60s and 70s when there were no time limits on welfare. So um, we were on welfare my whole childhood. When I was four, we spent a period of time, the six of us, in uh, foster care because my mother was very ill. And then again, when I was 13, we returned to foster care because, again, she was really ill. So uh, in between, she would have these episodes of bipolar depression and bipolar mania, but every once in a while she would get severely ill and that's when we would end up in the system. And where were you in the order of the six kids? Um, I was the fourth child, the eldest daughter. And with mom having that disease, how did that impact you other than obviously having to go into foster care and moving up? And what was it, what was the day to day like with, with mom? Um, it was very unpredictable. So if you think about the, the, the stories that you know about people who are raised by alcoholics, it was kind of very similar. Like you wouldn't know if how she left, how you left her in the morning was how you would find her when you got home from school. Um, sometimes her mania meant that she was up all night long. Like uh, I, I can remember coming downstairs in the morning and finding that all the furniture and all the rooms had been rearranged by her overnight. Um, my parents fought a lot. My father was frustrated and he had some issues with anger. And uh, so sometimes he would leave. Um, 
sometimes she would throw him out. They would always eventually come back together. I mean, when they died, they died in the same nursing home. Um, and they were in a good place together when they died. Dementia is a gift sometimes that way because a lot of the past kind of fell away from him. And so um, they had a peaceful time the last year or two of his life. But most of their marriage was filled with conflict. And so that's kind of what we grew up with. Um, what, were your, what were your siblings like? Um, growing up or now? I would say growing up, maybe growing up. to now as well. We, several of us, because we were older, we sort of took on the mantle of being parental to our younger siblings. So I have a brother. I was just reading the other day a paper I wrote in, for college on my family biography, and I was reading about my one brother who I, call, I called the surrogate father because he was second oldest um, and he sort of took on the responsibility of uh, the rest of us trying to keep the peace for the rest of us. And I sort of did a similar thing for my two little sisters. I felt very maternally towards them. Um, when they were born, they were three and four years younger than me. So I helped my mom, like all little girls do with like changing diapers and bringing her things while she was taking care of babies. And then when we got older and she got more and more ill, I, I felt responsible for things like making sure that the laundry was done so they had clean underwear to go to school and stuff like that, that my mom often wasn't able to really pay attention to. So um, I grew up feeling responsible for the little ones and feeling like my brothers were the ones responsible for me because our parents weren't really able to do that very well. And obviously, so mom is, is, is dealing with something very serious. Are there any fond memories or, or values that she passed down and to you that, that you're grateful for? Well, I think, you know, my mother was from Ireland and, and uh, she was a survivor. And so I think that what I inherited from her, I don't know that I was observing her being a survivor when I was a kid, because a lot of her backstory, I didn't even know until I was an adult, what she had been through it during her childhood in Ireland. But I think I inherited almost genetically this ability to be resilient and uh, to, to survive the things in my life that were really challenging and often felt debilitating. And so um, even though I couldn't really appreciate that about her when I was a kid, because when I was a kid, it was more like, why can't I just have a mom like all the other moms? Why does my mom have to be so different? But as an adult, I realized that what she, why she was different is because she had overcome lots of things that could have destroyed her and didn't destroy her. So that's what I get from her really is this strength, internal strength and resiliency that has really benefited me, like overcoming my childhood. Uh, what what sort of things did dad pass down to you as well? Dad was really, um, he really felt it was important that we be well read and that we do well in school. He, he never got past eighth grade. So when he was a kid, he had to drop out of school to get a job to help support his mom and his, he had like seven or eight siblings or something. And he was like the fourth child in the line. So the older boys would always leave school early and work because grandma didn't have any income. And so they would help support the family. So he left school after eighth grade. So he really instilled in us the importance of an education and being well read and doing well in school as a, as a way to get out 
of poverty. So we, all of us really kind of embrace that, I would say. Um, some of us more when we were younger, like my brothers, my older brothers in particular, the oldest two were like super, super smart. John was really great at math. Um, David was really great at literature and he's a writer. And John, um, well, John has a different story, but he was really great at math when he was younger. And, um, and so we all sort of took on this idea that we should be well read. So we read a lot, like, like every like six months or so our television would break. And I, I thought it really was broken. Like he would say that the, the picture tube, it got blown out. These are the old school TVs, right? The big fat ones with the huge back end and the big picture tubes. And he would say the picture tube got blown out and we couldn't get afford to get it fixed, which didn't seem surprising to us. And so we'd have to do other things. And so we'd be required to do a lot more reading to fill our time. Try to get six kids to sit still. Reading is really the only way to get them to do that. Um, so, so yeah, so he instilled on the importance, us, on the importance of education. Um, and the cash register honesty, you know, like the idea that if, if someone makes a mistake in a store, you should tell them they made the mistake as opposed to taking the extra money or the thing that they forgot to charge you for. Things like that. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Those kinds of values. You mentioned, you mentioned mom was from Ireland. Was dad Irish as well or was he from the U.S.? Dad, he was a mixed bag. So he's got, he had a lot of different... Um, nationalities in his in his family so he says we were like teensy weensy bit native american because we have like a great 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 grandmother who was native american but we're mostly like uh like northern european english irish norway places like that and did religion play a role in your upbringing at all oh yeah they were both very devout roman catholics and so what was that like for you growing up uh, with Catholicism in the household? Um, I think one of the things Catholicism taught me was to care about other people because Jesus was really a champion of the downtrodden. Um, but it also gave me a tremendous amount of guilt. So I can remember every, every Easter time we used to watch the greatest story ever told, which would be on TV, which was the story of Jesus of Nazareth from when he was growing up to when he was crucified. And uh, I would feel tremendously guilty about him dying for me because that's what they teach us, that he died for us. And I would just be like tremendously guilty at Easter time because I really didn't mean to cause him so much pain. I felt very bad about that. But I think that um, I don't really believe that, I don't really believe a lot of things the Catholic Church taught me now, but I do, I do keep the value of caring about the people that other people have forgotten. Awesome. And you mentioned being on welfare, and then you've also talked about a couple of times now not having, and you said the TV went out, and we could believe that we actually didn't have enough money to get it fixed. Was your environment also similar to yours or you had referenced earlier that you kind of wish that you had other moms for for parts when your mom would be struggling were you surrounded by poverty um outside of the household or was it unique to your household we tended to my father liked to rent houses in working class or working poor neighborhoods he didn't he say you think we have it bad at least we don't live in a trailer park that was kind of like his his comparison, like that is real poverty. Whereas as long as we could afford rent in a neighborhood where other people weren't poor, 
then we didn't have to think that we were poor. But so it really kind of created this division between us and the rest of the neighborhood. As much as it helped, it allowed us to socialize with other kids who weren't in poverty. It also made us feel separate from them. We went to Catholic school and. Uh, <sighs> Some of the nuns in our schools were particularly cruel in that they let it be known that our uniforms were donated by the church and stuff like that. So the other kids knew that how poor we were because the nuns let them know. So how does this relationship with run money impact you as you begin to get older uh, and start going into the world? I mean, there's a very clear relationship with money uh, that you're aware of, it sounds like, at a, at a young age. So I'm just curious, like, how did that impact how you saw the world? Um, I'm trying to think of a good example. I mean, I, I can tell you, I recently wrote a podcast about, uh, not a podcast, a blog about this uh, a few weeks ago about this idea of how it can take a, it can take a person who starts out in poverty like 20 years of nothing going wrong to, to climb out of poverty. So the Atlantic uh, did an article about this about a year ago that would take like 20 years of nothing going wrong. And so I was thinking about when I, I mean, first of all, I was able to go to college. My foster mother uh, was really pro-college for me. And of 75 kids that she had in her foster home, my brother and I were the only two that ever finished college. She was really proud of that. Why do you, um, think, why do you think you and your brother were the two out of the 75? Um... Well, I think part of it had to do with my father's uh, stressing us on the importance of education and being well read so that we both did well in school. And also school was an escape for us from our house. And so it was really important. When we were in school, we did everything we were supposed to do. We performed as well as we could. We didn't get in trouble. I think a lot of kids in the 70s when we were in foster care, a lot of the kids who were in foster care were really struggling with behavioral defiance and stuff like that. And we weren't like that. We were good little white Catholic kids who just wanted to survive. So we just did that by doing well in school. And so when we got a chance to go to college, we took it because we, we couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine, walking out of high school and into the world as a working person. I didn't know what I would do and nobody was helping me think about that. They were all just go to school, go to school, go to school. I don't know if you have this perspective, but it's an interesting situation. If you, if you look back and you've got a father who left school in eighth grade, you've got a mother who's really dealing with some serious stuff and you've got you and your brother in, in foster care and you two are two of the 75 that go on, on to college and so it's pretty fascinating as you think about how I might not use the right words here, so I'm going to do the best I can, but how do people overcome adverse situations or environments to better themselves and better their future? Like in a lot of ways, you and your brother are potential examples for that. Well, all six of us were able to do that in some way or another. And I do think that it's, I don't know what the word I would use. I think, I think we're pretty impressive human beings to be able to do it. Um, and and I, I think certainly we had champions in our worlds that kind of helped us along the way. Like to have a foster mother who really just thought we were too smart to waste that she pushed us, right? Um, she had a lot of flaws, but she did 
push us to go to school and tried to do her best to financially support that whenever she could. Um, and we had teachers who noticed that we were struggling emotionally and, but doing well academically. And so they would pay attention to us and try to encourage us to pursue those things we were good at and try to, I, I once had a teacher talk to me about like, you know, someday you'll be an adult and all of this will be behind you. So let's just do whatever we have to do to get you there. Like, how do you get there to be an adult and leave this all behind you? So I think having people in your life who kind of mentor you and, and encourage you is really important. Well, it sounds like also your brothers sort of showed you a path of sorts of saying like, it sounds like your older brother, if he can do it, then maybe I can do it. Whereas maybe if you were an only child and you didn't have uh, like an example to look up to. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he definitely, my brothers were examples for me to look up to. <laughs> my father, my brother, David, who was with me in the foster home uh, in, and when we were in high school, he went to Cornell. And my brother, my father said to me, uh, you know, you should go to college too, but you're never going to be as smart as your brother because you're a girl. So you can't go to Cornell, but you could go somewhere else. And he, he thought I should go to secretarial school was originally his plan for me. And I guess part of what made me look a little higher than that was uh, just defiance, like teenage defiance. Like, I'm not going to just be what you define me to be. I'm going to be better than that. So I did not get into Cornell. They rejected me. My grades weren't as good as my brother's grades, but I did get into Ithaca College. So I was like across town from him. So I was near him and that was important to me. I'm sure a lot of people get rejected from a school like Cornell. So I'm sure there are plenty others that are doing great things in the world who are part of that group. Yeah, but when your brother gets in and you don't, it kind of stings a little. Although I would have to say that after my first semester at Ithaca, um, I, I failed physics. I failed chemistry in high school and I failed physics in college. And you're required to take physics as a freshman. So I was just, it was my first real failure in college. And, and I was also just kind of getting into my alcoholism at that point. And so I was struggling with depression and there were like three suicides at Cornell in my first semester at Ithaca college. And there was one suicide at Ithaca college. And, um, and that happens quite a bit down there in terms of students who are struggling academically and they kind of have other issues and that sort of becomes enough motivation to kill themselves. And so I just remember saying to my parents, and I, when I called them drunk one night, I just remember saying, you're lucky I didn't go to Cornell because God only knows what would happen to me if I went to Cornell because people are killing themselves over there. And I kind of knew that if I were in that competitive and academic environment, that I might be one of those kids. So I was glad in the end that I got rejected by Cornell. Uh, I visited Cornell once and uh, I think they have a bridge and I forget the name that they have for that bridge where uh, they, a, lot, bridge. Yeah, a lot yeah. of people take their life. Um, you, you just mentioned alcoholism, depression. Um, were those things that showed up at all when you were in high school or did they really come out in college? Well, I was drinking in high school and I was uh, smoking a lot of pot in high school um, and both of those are depressants, but everybody around me was doing those things. And so it didn't look like depression. It just looked like hanging out and partying. But I do remember having this one New Year's Eve that I was with some friends and I was really drunk. And I have this picture of me from then. And it, this, one of the guys probably took a picture of me and I was laughing. And I was like, just so, I looked so excited and happy. And I know from my own personal recollection that 
five minutes after that, I was like sobbing in a corner and my friends were trying to get me up and walking around because I kind of crossed over this line in my drinking from happy drunk to, you know, sad, uh, depressed drunk. So I think I struggled with it, but I just didn't seem that as obvious as it did when I was in college. And for those that don't know, college is a place where a lot of this stuff does start to really present itself, the numbers on depression and anxiety and college campuses are, for lack of a better word, hotbeds for a lot of mental illness. And I think it's also a time where people are starting to think for themselves and the brain is starting to develop. And there's just, it's, it's a, it's a fascinating time for a lot of reasons. Um, but for you, what's it like? You mentioned you have your, this failure in school, uh, academically, you're drinking, uh, you're depressed. Uh, can you go into that space for us and just uh, for those uh, look I work with a lot of college athletes so hopefully there are college athletes that are listening to this or college students um, just paint that picture for us freshman year and and what you did and and what that was like oh that was so long ago um, um, literally it was like thirty four years ago um I'm trying to remember how I got past that. It was it was hard. Like I remember the halfway through that semester telling the, the uh, professor that I just didn't think I was getting it. Like I would sit in front of quizzes and uh, at the end of the quiz, my page would still be blank. And I would be, I would be like in my room trying to study physics and I would just get so overwhelmed. My dad had this approach to studying when I was a kid where like, um, we had, we had six kids in our house, so it was chaos and noise everywhere. So you had to kind of learn how to focus in on what you were doing regardless of the distractions. And that served really well in college in a dorm setting where there's lots of activity and you're trying to focus. But he also had this, um, attitude that if I could get through any problem in my homework, as long as I persevered and really tried to think it through. And I would just be like unable to think through a physics problem from the beginning to the end. Meanwhile, I'm getting an A in microeconomics. I'm getting an A in calculus. Um, so I'm excelling in, in, in my business classes because I was a management major. I was doing well, but it, this physics was just killing me. And so the, the instructor, when I went to him and said, I just really don't think I can do this. He was like, well, I'm not going to let you just uh, take the easy way out and drop the class. Um, and so you'll have to go pass fail. So I went pass fail and then uh, and I was obviously failing and so then he still wouldn't let, it was too late to, to drop the class. So I had to go to the end. And right before the final, I went to him and I said, I really don't know if I can take this exam. And he said, if I were you, you're doing so badly in this class, that I would just focus on the tests I'm doing well in and just accept the fact that you're gonna fail this class. So I was pretty angry about that. So when I failed, I knew it was partially because I just couldn't get the material, but also it was because my professor was kind of a jerk. And um, having done some teaching now myself on the college level, I can't imagine having a student come to me and saying, this is what's happening to me, and me saying, yeah, well, you know, you're just going to have to suck it up. And, and then at the end, just admit that you're a failure. Like, it was really cruel, I think. But I think my anger about his role in that kind of got me past my own 
uh, despair about my failure. But I certainly, from that point on, I had this realization that uh, I could fail at this thing or not. And that if failure was an option, and I didn't like it as an option. So I would do what I had to do to not have it happen again. There is so much to chew on. So one thing that's become apparent is you have these people in your life who are not perfect people, but have helped shape who you are and have helped teach you lessons. And we all do. We all do, right? Your your dad, not perfect, but uh, helped create some focus and some discipline and um, some drive. Uh, but then also told you, well, you, you're not going to be able to go to a school like Cornell and maybe you should go to secretary school. And that lit us it sounds like a little, a little fire under you as well to, to show him. You've got a foster mom who you said wasn't perfect, but she believed that you had a brilliant mind or a, a mind that could do good things and challenge you. And then you have this, this teacher who may not have this, had this intention, but sort of cultivated, um, once again, a, a relationship with failure that you weren't going to necessarily be okay with. So it's, it's just interesting to hear because a lot of us, and be in situations that are not ideal and be led by people that are not ideal. And there still might be opportunity there if we, if we choose to look at it that way. So that was one, one sort of culmination that I noticed. And then the other thing that I would wanted to pull on was that word despair. Uh, you said uh, about, you know, having this, you know, not being in despair with, when it came to physics, I had on a, another guest, uh, Dr. Mark Colston, who is a, uh, leading expert in, in suicide. And he said, many people, when they get to the point when they're suicidal, it's because um, they're in despair and they don't see any other alternative um, other than that that route. And uh, he really parses out the word despair and, 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 and uses that word. And so you're at this point where drinking too much uh, sounds like maybe an understatement by me and uh, really dealing with some, some challenges. What inside of you allowed you to keep going? Cause now you're in academia um, and you, you have graduated and you have a PhD. So uh, you know, a lot of people as a freshman, if they're, if they fail a class, there are people that drop out. They say, well, college isn't for me. That's something you hear a lot. Mm-hmm. What, what inside of you allowed you to, to keep going? It's hmm. a good question. I mean, dropping out of college, I never felt that was an option for me uh, at the time. Why not? Um, I think just because I had, to, I had worked so hard to get there and it had been so difficult and also, you know, I was going to Ithaca College, and uh, back then, Ithaca College was quite a, I, I, quite a party school, I would say. There was a lot of drinking around me. There were a lot of kids who were um, maybe struggling with their academics because they were prioritizing their partying. And so uh, it wasn't like a, it didn't feel like an environment of high achievers. Like I certainly after my freshman year went on uh, and met other students in different um, different years of school who were high achievers. I certainly met some really intelligent, ambitious people there. But um, my freshman year, I wasn't really exposed to that element. I was really exposed only to the party element. And so failure of a class didn't feel like failure of the person. I mean, I thought 
I failed as a person, but other people around me didn't. They were just like, what? Who cares about physics? Like, luckily, Ithaca College had this class called um, Why is the Sky Blue, which was really physics for dummies. And I took that my second semester to get my credits for physics. And I, my final paper for that class was writing about the um, chemical properties of tetrahydrocannabinol, which is the main ingredient in marijuana that makes it so much fun. So I was like, this is something I know about. Be, be, be that what it may, it was something that I knew about. So I could, I was interested enough to write about it. And that's kind of where I learned that like, if you, if you can find something to be interested in, you could probably do well in almost any class, as long as you make it personally worthwhile for yourself. So when I used to teach undergrads in uh, social work research, they, they find that incredibly painful. Most students don't want to learn about research because they're either intimidated by statistics or they just can't imagine how it would apply to their lives. And I used to just tell them, you need to find a topic you care about, a population, because you're a social work student, so a population that you care about, and focus everything you learn in this class on that to make it meaningful for yourself. And that will kind of get you through the things that you don't want to do. It's, it's so interesting to hear you. And I'm, I'm thinking about my college experience. And I was a sociology major, and I minored in African-American studies and political science at, at Syracuse. And... <laughs> You know, I had friends who were in the school of management, just like you. And I want to find out more about that from your perspective, because it's it's curious. It's not the it's not where I thought you were going to start uh, saying. But so I studied sociology, and and I just found it interesting. And and I just stayed with classes that I found interesting. And I would do so well in, in those classes, but then I would take science classes, and uh, like I remember taking geology, and they called it you know, rocks for jocks. And I was struggling. I was like, I, I'm, I'm really uh, right. not, not that interested in this. And I wasn't doing well, but back to you. So, so why have, why school of management? And then, <laughs> and did you transfer out of that or did you stay with that? I mean, like, uh, Oh, that's a very interesting story. So I picked management because it's the vaguest degree that they had. You had to pick a major and I didn't know what I wanted to be. My father always said I would be good as a secretary, which I took to mean maybe I'll be good in business. And marketing was too specific. Finance was too hard, man. My sister's an accountant, and one of my best friends is an accountant. And I give them a lot of credit because it's numbers. You're swimming in numbers, and it's so boring. And somehow they find it interesting, right? And so they are good at it. Um, so I took I picked management because it was vague, as vague as you could get. And um and it wasn't, and I, it was probably like, I think my sophomore year, I took intro to sociology and I started realizing that my personal experiences were actually part of a larger picture of how systems worked and how relationships between people worked. <coughs> and there were, um, and what I felt like was wrong with the world was actually wrong with the world. Like I learned that in sociology. And so did you, did you transfer out or did you change your major or did you, what'd you do? Oh, I didn't have the money. <clears throat> so back then it was really unusual to do a five year bachelor's degree. Like now we don't even really use the terms freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, right? We talk about first years, second years, third years, and so on, because so many kids might get double majors or they might have issues that require them to have a fifth year. But back then College financing wasn't really set up that way. 
excuse me, I think I'm starting to have an asthma attack. College financing wasn't really set up that way. And uh, I didn't really have any money left. Like my senior year, I ran out of money even to pay rent by the second half of my senior year. So I was just like, I need to uh, figure out how to get through what I'm doing, take as many classes as I'd like in this other area, which became my minor, but finish out the degree I started with because I can't afford to switch because none of the credits weren't transferable between business to sociology. So I just kind of had to make do. But I remember in, I had a senior seminar on business ethics, which is just ironic in itself. There is such a class because there isn't such thing in the real world. But I had this class on business ethics, and there were like 12 of us in the class, and the professor asked us this question. Like, if you were a manufacturer of cigarettes, and you found, you know that in the U.S., uh, that there's a, there was a push in the 80s towards more filters uh, on cigarettes because there are a lot of unfiltered brands back in like the 60s and 70s. But now that we know that cigarettes can cause cancer in the 80s and you can't sell unfiltered cigarettes really without being guilty of causing cancer, what do you do with your inventory of unfiltered cigarettes? And of the 12 students, I was the only one who said destroy them. Everybody else said sell them to third world countries. So I got in this huge debate with some of the guys in my class about how that was like, I said, this is a class on ethics and that is unethical behavior. Like knowingly giving a product to other customers who could die from it just because your own country has laws that don't let you do that. And this one guy in my class turned around and said, you are in the wrong major. And I was like, I know, <laughs> but there's really nothing I could do about it at the time. So I'm just curious. You said something about business ethics, not, you can't have that. Tell me more about that. I worked in corporate America for like 13 years. And uh, what I learned is that to rise above middle management, because I was middle management towards the end of that 13 years, but to rise above middle management, you have to be willing to compromise your own values hmm. in some way, either, uh, in the pursuit of money, you're willing to lie to clients or uh, the way you treat other people in the work environment so you can get ahead, like um, stepping on the necks of people to get ahead, stuff like that. Like I, I remember going through multiple mergers and acquisitions and um, having the heads of companies coming in and uh, just kind of doing things that I knew were unethical or misleading or dishonest and yet they were wealthy successful men and i just knew that that's not the road i ever wanted to go down so maria so you spent 13 years in in corporate even after you have this realization in in your business yeah, that's where you're going to make money so like i yeah. wanted to go to graduate school when i got out of undergrad but i didn't have any money i owed my landlord five months rent so i needed to get a job to pay the rent and i applied and to two different kinds of places. I applied to human service agencies to do administrative work there. Um, and I applied to a corporate um, entity in Ithaca to do administrative work there. And they're the people that hired me. So I kind of got on this path with them. I advanced through, um, I, was, I was in administration for a while and then I realized that I didn't like that. So I got into technical support and then uh, Windows was just coming out really is an operating system was just coming out. And so we were, we were building this software package to um, process data in Windows and they needed someone to test it. And I happened to have shown a proclivity for 
criticizing other people's work, I guess. So, so I ended up doing software testing and that took me through the rest of my career. I did software testing and technical support. After a while I did management of technical support and then I um, relocated and did testing again at a couple different companies before I went to graduate school. But you, you showed early in your college education that you had to be interested in it to learn it and to grasp it. Were you interested in that, that uh, for lack of a better word, software uh, and how it ran? Or how did you pick it up? Or how did you said I, I had a proclivity to learn it? Like, how did that even come to be? Well, you know, I was trying to help clients use our software. And um, so I could see places where it was difficult or flawed. I mean, it was kind of obvious when you were in the trenches with the clients trying to figure it out. And so, and I also understood what the clients were going to want to get out of it. So I knew whether or not it was going to do it. Um, but really, I think I just enjoyed having like a puzzle and trying to figure out uh, how the puzzle is supposed to work. So I, did, I didn't even try my hand at uh, influencing software design until several years into being a software tester. In the beginning, it was mostly like, you know, this new environment, computer environment, and new software applications designed for that. And we were all trying to figure out how that works. And uh, so I wasn't the only person who was sort of at the beginning of their career and the beginning of this particular wave of technology that was trying to figure it out. So it was interesting. It was really interesting. You know what's interesting about what you're talking about? My grandpa's a CPA and was an accountant. So uh, we've had many lunches over the years. Uh, fortunately, he's, he's still alive, although dealing with some stuff that maybe we'll get into later in this conversation. And he always told me that it was about the people and he loved the relationships that he had with his clients. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think about friends that work with numbers. Let's just use numbers as an example. I think for them, numbers is solving a puzzle and it's very similar to what you were talking about. And uh, they're trying to solve a puzzle for people. And right. um, I think even people that go into fields that are not as people oriented, they're still human and humans still crave uh, the desire to help others or social interaction in, in some sense. Uh, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily extroverted per se. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, this notion of solving problems and you know, business at, at the end of the day is, is, about trying to solve problems. Academia, I would imagine, is about trying to solve problems. And so if you look at it from a granular level, they're all in the business of trying to progress society. Um, yet, a lot of times we can get bogged down into the numbers and, and where we can get bogged down into, I'm sure in, in your world, research and, and the data and, and really get bogged down. But at the end of the day, it's all about humans. Um, and so it, it's just an interesting thought. I was thinking about my conversations with my grandpa and how you were talking about your friends who were accountants or are accountants and how they love it and they find it interesting because they still are doing it. You know, they're not doing it for a robot. They're, they're still servicing human beings. So I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Um, I, I, there was something, but it's gone. That's okay. So, so let's go back to you. So you're there for 13 years. Um, 
And you said you probably would have gone back to grad school earlier, but you needed the money and you needed to raise the funds. When did you decide, hey, I want to go back and really uh, go back to sort of those sociology roots and the systems and, and seeing how humans interact with humans? Yeah, you know, it's funny because I can remember having this conversation with my therapist uh, back when I was living in Ithaca where in my, I guess my early 30s, where I said, you know, I think I just need to accept the fact that I'm never going to be a social worker because I always kind of held it in my mind that that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to get my MSW and be a social worker. I knew I had friends who had done it and they really enjoyed the work. And uh, most of them worked with kids. And I always thought that because I grew up in a difficult world and I was in the foster care system and I knew that there had to be a better way to advocate for kids in foster care and make sure they're safe because the system definitely failed me in that regard. So I wanted to, so I always thought that I wanted to be a social worker for kids in foster care. But also, I, I, I did so much work in therapy dealing with the, um, aftermath of my childhood that at some point I just had to, I said to my therapist, I just need to accept that I'm just not going to be a social worker. Like maybe I'm, I'm just only able to help myself and that's the limit of it. And that I'm not going to, I'm not willing to go back into poverty to go to school is how I saw it. So I just need to uh, give it up as a dream. And she said, well, if that's how you feel, then you know, you, there's no harm in not being a social worker. There's no shame in deciding to give up on that dream. It's fine. And so it was a few years after that that I um, moved back up here to Syracuse to live with the woman who's now my wife. And I was like five or 10 minutes away from my parents. And so I would go and see them uh, more often than I did when I was living in Ithaca. And that's when I started noticing that they were not really doing all that great Um physically, financially, or in any other way, and that they were starting to become frail, and they weren't even that old. And so my father started having routine emergency room visits because he wasn't managing his blood pressure very well. My mom started having other health problems uh, related to the long-term effects of being on psychotropic medications for her bipolar disorder. So uh, they, I started seeing that they weren't getting treated very well when they were in healthcare settings. And I thought it was because of stigma around mental illness and poverty. So um, it, that's when the idea of being a social worker sort of came up again, was there's gotta be a better way to treat older people in healthcare, and maybe I'd have to be one of the people that figures that out. So that's when I thought about going back to graduate school. And then I got diagnosed with breast cancer. And the first thought I had sitting in the room and the doctor told me about the cancer, my first thought was like, oh my God, am I going to die and have done nothing useful with my life? Like, or am I going to go and make some change so that I can actually be more useful? And so that's when I decided that I was just going to take the leap and apply to graduate school. Okay. <laughs> it's a lot. I know it's a lot. No, I, I'm trying to think of which thread I'm, I'm most interested in pulling on. Uh, the first one I'll, I'll just go into is, is sexuality. Um, getting married and being a woman and, and marrying another woman. Um, first of all, did you always, was sexuality always clear for you? Or is that something that you discovered later? And, and then maybe I'm going to pull on some of the other threads as, as we continue to unpack your story a little bit. Okay. Um, no, actually, my sexuality was not always clear to me. Um, I would, I would say that I'm probably, if you were looking at the, 
the human spectrum of sexuality from purely heterosexual on one end to purely homosexual on the other end, I'm probably somewhere to the homosexual side of the middle of that spectrum, if there is such a spectrum. Um, uh, so, so I have had relationships with men and with women. When I was growing up, I really was only focused on boys, although I had really strong crushes on girls. Um, but I sort of didn't know what to do about those things. And so I just tried to hide them and ignore them. Um, when I was in high school in my foster home, one of my, my foster sisters was a lesbian. And so she would take me into like bars and stuff um, when I was in high school. But everybody in the 70s were so entrenched in these like feminine, masculine archetypes, stereotypes that I just couldn't relate to either side of that. Like I didn't see myself as like an ultra femme with the big hair and the makeup and everything, even though that's exactly how I presented myself. It didn't feel like me. And I didn't see myself as butch. Um, and I found all of that a little scary. So I thought that meant that I wasn't a lesbian. And so I sort of kind of shied away from even thinking about it until the first time I fell in love with a friend in college and realized that that's what was happening. Um, Unfortunately, I realized that after she died, that that's what was happening. So I didn't come out until maybe the year after college. When you say after she died, did she pass when when you were dating, or, or? no, no, we so we were friends. Um, she made a move towards me, which I rebuffed, uh, and then she started dating girls right after that. And then I was jealous of her uh, after that. Like it was too late. Like I'd rebuffed her and then I realized it was too late, but she died of, um, she had blood clots in her lungs that, uh, stopped her heart. And then to dissolve the blood clots, they had to give her medication that, um, put her into renal failure. So she died of renal failure when we were 19. Mm. Was she the first person close to you to pass? Well, you know, my, my foster father died when I was 14, but I didn't really know him. Um, so it was traumatic, I think, because of the way that he died. But I, I didn't really have any emotional connection to him. But he was my first dead body I ever saw. Um, and my grandmother died when I was 20. Uh, so I had people in my life die before. but. It, not somebody my age. I mean, she went home for Christmas break and she seemed perfectly healthy to me because she was hiding her symptoms from everybody really well. Um, and then she died on January 11th. Um, and uh, it was a shock to most of us because nobody knew that she was really ill. Like the only person who really knew anything was going on was her girlfriend who had just figured it out right before she got sick. And then she died very quickly in the hospital. So to have someone your own age die like that is like really shocking. Like I remember from some friends and I were just reminiscing about it on Facebook the other day because we just had the anniversary. And I just remember the memorial service at um, Hendricks Chapel at Ithaca College was so full that there were kids outside. I mean, you just couldn't fit all the people in. She was really popular. She was very vivacious and lively. And so many people knew her and were shocked by her passing. Um, yeah. How did that impact you? Um, I'd say my drinking and my drug use got worse after that. 
And in some ways, I credit her with pushing me hard enough into that that I was able to get sober pretty young. I was 24 when I got sober. But, um, but yeah, I was very sad. By my junior year, I would, went through a period of time when I was suicidal and I started counseling. And a lot of that got kicked off by losing her. And the ideas that I um, had been kind of ignoring, the feelings in myself that I had been ignoring that I couldn't ignore anymore after she died, like the fact that I loved her and that I missed my chance with her. Her girlfriend at the time is still a friend of mine today. And we used to talk about um, how we, we couldn't decide which is worse to have the person that you, the first person you ever fell in love with die without ever having had a chance to be with them or to have the first person you were ever with as a lover die while you were still with them. Like we, both of us were very traumatized by the position that we were in in relationship to her. And it, it, either way is awful, I think, but. So you've had some, some real hardships in your life, but you also talked about getting help uh, in your early twenties. And then you, you referenced having a therapist at 30. Oh uh, yeah. Others don't necessarily go and get help. Um, what allowed you to go get that help? And then, um, what, why did you find it valuable? What, what about it was helpful for you? Um, well, why I eventually got help was, um, I had this friend who was over at Cornell, who was my go-to call when I was really desperate because he never slept. So, um, I, I would call him frequently. I would get drunk and then I would call him and I would talk about wanting to kill myself and, he would sort of talk me into waiting until the next day. And then after a few of these phone calls, he was like, you know, I, I don't like worrying about you like this. Like, I don't like this feeling that uh, you might someday be so desperate that you don't call me. And um, so I wish you would talk to somebody else about it, like an adult. Even though we were both 20, we still saw the world in terms of us and the adults, right? So he was like, I wish you would talk to like an adult about this. And, um, and then I had this guy that I was dating who was older guy who was like a, a cocaine dealer. And um, he was, he had serious problems with alcoholism. And that's what I like to do. I like to get involved with people who are worse off than me in terms of alcohol and drugs so that I could say they've got problems. Like I'm just a mess, but they are serious. And uh, he said to me that I had this messed up relationship with my parents and, uh, and I should get help or something. And I was just so angry at him about that. And again, like in defiance of that judgment of me, I was like, I'll show him. I'll go and I'll go to some therapist and they'll tell me that there's nothing they can do and it'll be proof that there is nothing anyone can do to help me. And so I went to the school counseling center, sort of like on this quest to prove that I was unhelpable. And she really saved my life. In some ways, your your defiant mindset is what gets you to where you want to go. Um, but then there's like where my will to live lives in my defiance. I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. The other thread that that I wanted to obviously tug on is breast cancer, and um, so you're now in grad school when when that happens. And um, well, actually, it was I went. 
it was before I started graduate school that I had my first breast cancer. And then I had a second breast cancer while I was pursuing my doctorate. So your master's in social work for the first one, and then the second one comes when you're pursuing your doctorate. Mm -hmm. So getting those letters next to your name are not easy tasks um, alone. Um, and I would imagine, you know, this is where <laughs> I haven't walked in your shoes, so I don't know. So I think what I'd love to do is actually just get what your perspective on what was it like for you pursuing these um, academic, for lack of a better word, achievements that were meaningful for you, it sounds like, and going through, you know, breast cancer. Oh, what is it like doing anything while you're going through breast cancer? Um, so when I, when I started my MSW, I had already finished my cancer treatment for the first breast cancer. And actually, I remember getting the bill for, um, I had already applied to graduate school. The first thing I did before I even started treatment was apply to graduate school. And then um, I was going through treatment and I got the bill for the radiation therapy because I had uh, radiation on my breast for like six and a half weeks and I got the bill. The total bill was $15,000, but my co-pays only added up to like $750, which was quite a chunk of money even then. But I was just like, if I hadn't had health insurance, I would be like declaring bankruptcy at this point because that's just radiation and surgeries had their own huge bills. And if you didn't have health insurance, how did you cope with that? So the first paper I wrote in my, um, in my MSW education was a, a policy memo on the impacts of cancer on the uninsured and uh, the financial risk that it poses to someone who doesn't have insurance. So that's sort of, even though getting cancer was the reason I went back to school to help the elderly, that first uh, course really kind of put me on this path towards policy and research, right? Like I thought there's meaningful questions that need to be answered. Some of those answers will drive policy, but, but some of those answers will drive advocacy. But either way, that seems like the right way to go in terms of what to do, useful things to do with your um, degree. So I really feel like cancer really shaped my whole educational experience. Um, everything that I was interested in in my MSW education had to do with either dementia and my parents, my caregiving for my parents, my cancer survivorship. Um, or my uh, being a lesbian, everything that I was interested in were related to those four things. So like my first year internship was at a dementia clinic. Um, and then I led a support group for adult caregivers of people with dementia. And then I focused my papers and uh, research and everything on like either elder abuse or the financial impacts of cancer or um, at different aspects of the welfare system. Like it was really all very shaped by my personal experience. And getting your PhD and uh, also becoming a, a professor, what's that been like for you as you teach? And what's it like for you to uh, make an impact that way? Well, first of all, I no longer teach. So I did teach for a few years. Um, but I'm not really uh, comfortable in a classroom environment teaching. It's not, it doesn't come naturally to me. What comes really naturally to me is uh, 
analyzing numbers, statistics, um, and uh, and and for those of you, because no one's gonna see the, <laughs> no one's gonna see, but I I am gonna try to describe Maria's face as she said that it was she leaned into the camera, tilted her head. And then just kind of smiled with the eyes rolled to the top of her head when she said numbers. And she it's just, ironic. She just it's did what it again. So, yeah. so yeah, you you love you love the research and um and dissecting the 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 data. Um, right. I, I like I like ex explore, examining the data to answer a question. The questions I want to answer are usually questions that really mean something to me. Um, and the data is a way to get at them. I do other research where I work directly with people, which I think is harder. Like one of the reasons why when I finished my master's, well, my focus on my master's was on policy and advocacy rather than clinical practice. And the reason for that is I feel like when you're doing clinical practice, you're really, you have this potential to either really help somebody or really hurt somebody. And that's a lot of responsibility that you take on for another person. So many people take it on uh, casually, um, and those people can do a great deal of harm because they're not really understanding the weight and the importance of what they're doing. The same could be said for legislators, uh, politicians, policymakers, that we, we all have this opportunity in our work to either do great good or great harm, and we, Many of us treat it cavalierly, like we don't really appreciate the significance of what we could be doing, good or bad, to other people. But I just yep. felt like, I'm sorry. Yes, there's, there's two things in my life that this is relevant for. One, I was literally having a conversation with my wife yesterday. Her mom is a judge. And I was asking her, what is her mom like? Because uh, my wife has sat in and, and watched her work and she said she's just very serious um she knows that her job is a serious job and you know she's not making jokes and she's firm and she you know she takes that job seriously and it was just interesting to hear that perspective and it, it speaks to what you're talking about is like you know this this stuff's serious and mm -hmm. it does matter and then the other thing that I was thinking about was my upbringing. And um, I think for a lot of reasons, I'm privileged. And, um, you know, my family was not on welfare. And I had really, really loving parents, um, very functional parents. And um, so I have always been drawn to, um, like, African-American studies in college was something I was drawn to even at, at a school like Syracuse. It's not like I was at a historically black college. Yeah. Um, you know, so I was taking classes in African-American studies where I was the minority and, you know, you had to sit in a room and, uh, you know, you would raise your hand a little cautiously um, mm -hmm. because you wanted to make sure what you said was not going to be offensive. And then I'd go over to my sociology classes and, I was one of the few heterosexual uh, white males in in those classes, and I, I'm there. There's something for me that I'm often drawn to when it's not personal for me that it it really interests me because when it's personal, I know how how much it it, it tugs at my heart, and you know I want to help people. Um, for example, my grandpa died of Parkinson's. Like 
that is something that I saw, I witnessed. And, but what draws me are these injustices that, um, like I look at, it, I'm just like, well, that's just not right. So for example, you know, I went to college from 2002 to 2006, you know, uh, um, marriage equality was, it, it's so people forget, like most States people cannot be married, married, um, same, same gender marriage. And that was a, that was like one of my big items that I'd vote on because I just was like, well, that just doesn't seem right. Even though, it wasn't like I had a bunch of gay friends. It wasn't, um, I didn't have a gay brother. <laughs> it wasn't like it hit home to me. But as I'm hearing your story and you just went over it, you said, you know, you're the fact that you're a lesbian and, and that was something that was important to you. Cancer, dementia, um, poverty. There are pieces of your life that um, have helped shape what you study. It's fascinating to me because um, I think there's a lot of different ways to get to doing the right thing for a lot of different people. And, right. you know, you don't have to go through hell to understand that going through hell is, is wrong. And conversely, if you do go through something really tough, there's also an amazing opportunity to leverage that and um, to use that. And it's not to say that going through that, anyone wishes on anybody, but there is an opportunity if you take it by the mantle and run and run with it. So I'm just thinking about that as I listen to you talk and I hear your energy and your passion for things that have impacted you. And it, it was just something that I was reflecting on myself as well. Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, if you've survived adversity in your life, you, you have choices, right? You could leave it behind you or do your best to leave it behind you. And I certainly know people who have had similar childhoods to mine who just do whatever they can do to be completely separated from that. Um, and then there are people who it inspires us to take action and to focus our work on those types of situations. And I've fallen into that category. But I think that people choose that perspective of using your experience to try to change the world because we want to make our experience have had meaning to someone other than ourselves, right? So what is the benefit of having overcome all of those things if I'm just the only person who learned anything from my overcoming those things? Whereas if I can try to make meaning of my experience by using that to help other people, then I get to feel like I benefit other people and not just myself. So it's sort of how I find meaning in my life in the world and make sense of otherwise we're just atrocious experiences. Mm. Yeah. So, so talk a little more about your research and what you found, um, what you're drawn to. Uh, just give us a little more insight into the work that you're doing and, and the work that you've done. Well, if you'd asked me that five years ago, I had done so little, I could really talk about all of it, but now it's getting a little ahead of me. Um, so initially my, my work focused, my doctoral work focused on looking at the question of whether or not somebody with a history of psychiatric problems was at greater risk of developing dementia. Um, and I already knew that when a person has mental illness and dementia, I knew this from my mom's experience, you have mental illness and you have dementia, and then you try to find a facility that will take them, 
first of all, assisted living is basically out because of either you're too poor for it or they don't want to deal with disturbing behavior. So when someone's manic, they believe me, they are, they disturb their environment for sure. So, um, so the option really left for someone like that is nursing homes, but a lot of nursing homes aren't really trained in dealing with mental illness. They end up with people who are mentally ill, uh, but they're not really trained to handle that. So what I saw in the system was that my mom had nowhere to go but nursing homes and that a lot of the nursing homes, when they were discharging her from the hospital for the episode that uh, put her in a coma and then ended up her requiring nursing care, a lot of the nursing homes rejected her because they didn't want to deal with someone who had mental illness. So she could only get into like the poorest nursing home in the county, basically. Um, so I knew from that personal experience that a person with a history of mental illness has very few options, but one of those options is probably going to be early admission into nursing facilities, earlier than most older adults. So my mom was like 72 or something when she went into a nursing home. She never came out. She lived 12 years in nursing homes until she died at 84. So I did this uh, analysis of a national data set looking at thousands of people, 13% of them who at some point had a doctor tell them that they had a problem with either psychiatric, emotional, or nervous problems. That's as specific as most people who study older adults get in their questions. Because there's so much stigma around mental illness that we don't even want to explore that question with our um, national surveys of older adults. And what I found was that most people who um, have a history of these problems are more likely to have lower levels of cognitive function in old age after 65 and to have steeper rates of decline in their cognitive function over time, which put them at greater risk for needing uh, nursing home care. So it's just sort of like a question, a, a question to the data that answered something I already knew was true in real life. But that's one of the purposes of science is to confirm these, what we call anecdotal experiences in research, confirm those anecdotal experiences with actual hard data. And that's what I did. And what do you yeah. hope, what do you hope comes from this? What do you hope is the next sort of um, approach or solution or where, where do you hope we go from here? Well, I think what we need to do is to provide adequate resources to older adults who have these histories of mental illness so that they can stay in the community safely, right? So a lot of the focus on um, for uh, the Older Americans Act and for state and county offices for aging across this country, a lot of their focus is to provide supports that enable older adults to stay where they want to be as opposed to having to end up in institutions. So for some folks, that means you go to your local office for aging and you get them to help you pay your heat bills because you can't afford it otherwise, and then you get to stay in your home um, because your heat's on. Uh, so, But for older adults with mental illness, I think it means having community-based solutions that address their mental health concerns at the same time addressing their um, cognitive concerns. So for my mother, the real thing that made it impossible for her to ever get out was that her dementia meant, meant she couldn't remember if she was taking her meds, right? So if there had been a way to have affordable um, in-home visitation by health aides that 
that could come in and make sure that she was taking her meds, she might've been able to stay at home. But because she was poor and that's not necessarily the, um, she was too poor to buy that service, right? And then the service of having health aides come in really has to be prescribed by a physician to be covered by Medicaid. And then it's a short term service. So generally you'd have an aide or a nurse coming in. If the doctor said this patient needs help at home managing meds, the nurse might come in and uh, teach you how to put your meds in a pillbox. And then the lesson had been done. So the short term service is over and then you're on your own again. And so um, that just wasn't workable for my mom because of her memory issues. So uh, there's just not really good solutions in between solutions for people who are too poor, but not too sick. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. And dementia is brutal. If anyone and a lot of people have, have, have seen it uh, take people away and you right. I think more and more of us are having those experiences watching people have dementia because the boomers are getting older. Right. And so they're, they're a large generation of people and, um, they have large families who get to witness the tragedy of this disease. Yeah. And it was interesting. Uh, my grandma who is a Holocaust survivor, who's still alive. She, she's battled dementia for a number of years now. And, uh, she's a survivor and uh, in every sense of the word and, and she's surviving now, but you, you see her surviving without her cognitive functioning. And it is, uh, and it's, it's a, it's a tough deal for sure. It's hard. It's really hard. Um, what, what do you hope to do next? Like if you, if you were to put your energy into something, um, what, what do you see yourself doing in the next five, maybe 10 years? Um, that's a great question. The things I'm focusing now on now are more like um, trying to improve the services to caregivers of people with dementia in um, historically underserved communities. And uh, so we go about that a couple different ways. So one program I'm working on with a colleague in our public health department she provides the public health education piece, and I actually do program evaluation of what we're doing with this with um, African American older adults on the south side of the city. So we're providing like health education on what is dementia, what is caregiving, and how um, how can you get better supports from existing agencies in your caregiving. So a lot of folks in the African American community don't really um, well. I say that a lot of older adults in our county don't really know that we have services for people with dementia. Um, so the, the, uh, the natural place to go for assistance with dementia is the Alzheimer's Association, but not everyone knows that they exist. And then for um, African-American folks, they don't always feel like they're welcome at agencies like that because you're looking at the demographics of the agency versus the demographics of the community. Most of the social workers and administrators and public faces of agencies that serve older adults are white. And so it's hard for someone who's not white to think if I go to them, they're going to understand who I am and where I'm coming from. So part of our job is to kind of bring those agencies into the African-American neighborhoods and to broker the relationship between the caregivers and those predominantly white agencies to help 
facilitate and build trust so that when the funding goes away, because it's a state-funded program, so when the funding goes away, that community will still stay connected to those agencies. Got it. So I think that's a good place for us to, to wrap. And I just want to thank you for your vulnerability, your willingness to, to share um, some of the challenges that, that you've had to overcome in your life and uh, for being that resilient and, and strong person that uh, it sounds like you acknowledged from a young age that whether it was DNA or, or something that was cultivated, um, thanks for continuing to be resilient and to use some of the adversity in your life to hopefully help others and, and, and spread innovation and change and, and just thought and, and provoke thought for people that might not be able to speak for themselves in that same manner. So thanks for all the work and thanks for coming on. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And I hope that your listeners um, get something meaningful out of it for themselves. Awesome. Maria, is there a place where people can find out the work that you're doing? Um, is there somewhere that you would want to reference or if you want to help people learn more about dementia or Alzheimer's you talked about at the end, uh, if people want to learn more about that or the work that you're doing, where's a good place where, where they can find out that information? Um, the work that we're doing here on the south side of Syracuse can be found on the website uh, Genesis uh, we have a Facebook page, Genesis Health Project Network, and we also have a website for the Genesis Health Project Network. Um, and then I also have a Facebook page called Caregiver Matters of CNY, where I talk about different issues that are faced by people providing care to someone with dementia. And the, that Facebook page connects to my YouTube channel, which is uh, the same title, Caregiver Matters of CNY. Um, and... I have, a, I have a faculty website uh, at the Falk College at Syracuse University where you can learn more about what I'm doing with my work. Awesome. And we'll put those in the show notes as well. So Maria, thank you for coming on and uh, stay warm up in Syracuse. And uh, that place has a special place in my heart. Uh, there's, there's something unique, at least from my perspective, it's so hard to put your finger on it as far as what Syracuse means to the people that go there, but it is, is special. So, uh, enjoy. And, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. You enjoy the snow, Brian. <laughs> thanks. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to intentional performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. And, uh, he said to me, that I had this messed up relationship with my parents and uh, and I should get help or something. I was just so angry at him about that. And again, like in defiance of that judgment of me, I was like, I'll show him. I'll go and I'll go to some therapist and they'll tell me that there's nothing they can do and it'll be proof that there is nothing anyone can do to help me. And so I went to the school counseling center, sort of like on this quest to prove that I was unhelpable and she really saved my life.